Hi, friends. For regular listeners of our show, you know I'm always trying to amplify and lift up the voices of BIPOC leaders. That's why I'm so excited to tell you about our new sponsor, the Wakeman Agency. For those of you talented leaders of color, listen up. The Wakeman Agency is creating the first ever directory of BIPOC-led nonprofits to connect them with corporations for the possibility of funding and other opportunities. The initiative is called Louder Than Words and was started to turn corporate expressions of commitment of support for racial equity into real action against systemic racism. The best part is it's free to join. So if you're a BIPOC leader running a nonprofit or know someone who is, sign up now at thelouderpledge.com. Once again, it's thelouderpledge.com. They're compiling the directory now for release in a couple of weeks, so do it! Welcome to Nonprofit Lowdown. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. Welcome, podcast listeners. It's Rhea Wong with Nonprofit Lowdown once again. Today, my guest is Rachel Jelinek, the founder of Reflection Films, and we are going to talk about storytelling and using video to tell your story. So welcome, Rachel. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you inviting me to join you. Oh, this is going to be a lot of fun. So before we jump into this, tell me a little bit about yourself and why you decided to start Reflection Films. Sure. Let's see. So first, I'll say that I never intended to start my own business. We actually got started the business out of personal loss, but it's ultimately become a gift. My father-in-law, who was a very special man, Frank Birmingham, he died rather suddenly and unexpectedly of a heart attack about 20 years ago. And basically, as part of our grieving process, we wound up creating a tribute video in his honor. And out of that experience, processing the loss and interviewing family members and friends and this tribute video, which the process was meaningful, but the outcome as well, we decided to launch Reflection Films, basically celebrating life stories and creating oral history and family legacy videos. So that's actually how we got started. We transitioned to doing videos for mission-driven organizations because we actually were finding that we reached out to older family members. We either found that they didn't have a story to tell or they didn't think anyone was listening. And so while we were trying to figure that out, we had people from businesses and nonprofits coming up to us saying, we know we need to tell our story. Why don't you help us with that? And so we transitioned essentially. For a little while, we had a hybrid experience. We were trying to be all things for all people and we spread ourselves kind of thin. And so we wound up having to take a step back and say, you know what, where do we really want to be? And so we very firmly landed in the mission-driven space. And so that's where we focus our efforts now on uh, storytelling and video content creation for mission-driven organizations. In mission-driven organizations, we talk a lot about using story to convey our work, using story to get new donors in the door. But before we jump into that, can you briefly characterize what do you mean when you say storytelling and what makes a good story? That's a great question. For me, a great story is one that creates an emotional connection. And for me in particular, I really feel one that creates empathy. That's kind of where we focus a lot of our efforts um, and a lot of our energies. And when we talk to people about creating stories and their strategies, there are a couple different frameworks that we use. One is we always talk to people about what is it you want people to know? What is it you want people to feel? And what is it you want people to do? 
And so I think that if you think about those three questions and just use that as your initial approach to thinking about what content you want to put out there, I think that can be a very compelling way to get started in thinking about your strategy. Three questions were so good. Could you repeat them again for all of us so we can cement them in our minds? Certainly. So what is it you want people to know? What is it you want people to feel? And what is it you want people to do? Yes. So good. So good. (laughs) So we use that as a basis, one of the frameworks that we use. Another framework that we find really helpful when we're talking to people about thinking about their storytelling and the different kinds of content they want to create, I think about a workshop that I attended. It was a Google-led workshop a few years ago, and there were talks about three sort of buckets of categories of content, hero, hub, and help. Some of you might be familiar with this model already. But the hero content is what is the content, and I'm not talking about making people hero. I'm just sort of, we can talk about that later, but I'm talking about what are those big branding moments that you really want to put out there? So maybe it's a big impact or success story. Often the hero content comes out maybe once or twice a year. It might be the video, for example, that you share at a gala event, for example. So that's the hero content, those big signature moments. The hub content is what kind of regular sort of episodic content can you be creating and sharing with your audience in order to stay top of mind? So for example, it might be doing profiles of your volunteer on a regular basis, or it might be your staff. Or for example, if you work at an animal shelter, it might be doing a profile of different animals who are ready for homes. So that's sort of the hub content. And then the help content is what is sort of the how-to content where you can help your audience. So for example, if you work for an educational institution, it might be how to fill out a financial aid form. So those are the two frameworks that I wanted to share. The what do you want people to know? What do you want people to feel? What do you want people to do? And then thinking about the buckets of hero content, hub content, and help content. To get back to your idea about how do I frame storytelling? I really think about, again, it's about creating an emotional connection. For us, it's often around empathy. And I think that when people are willing to make themselves vulnerable by sharing their story for the benefit of others, that's really a gift. And it's those kinds of stories that we often find ourselves working. You know, reflection films, we do both filming and animation typically for a fundraising, marketing, or training purpose. And a lot of the stories that we tell are sort of short, sort of documentary style. That's typically the kinds of stories that we're engaging in. So I want to pause there to talk about vulnerability for a second, because I agree with you, the most effective storytelling and by extension fundraising is personal, right? It's the personal connections, it's the personal stories, it's the personal relationships. What I find is that there are leaders that are really reluctant to lead with vulnerability. And so not to get all Brene Brown about this, but talk to me a little bit about how you help organizations tell stories of vulnerability and leaders tell vulnerable stories. Because I think the impulse in a lot of nonprofits is to be kind of bulletproof, like everything is great. We do all these things. We don't have any problems at all with anything. But I think that's not a real story that invites people into the participation of the work. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because when I think about vulnerability, I think about it in a couple of different ways. So one is kind of when you choose to make yourself vulnerable by sharing your own story. 
And I think that you're right that a lot of leaders don't necessarily, that's not in their comfort zone, right? Obviously, usually don't people, the whole point of being vulnerable is not actually feeling comfortable. But I think that, as you said, a lot of people feel like they have to think there's this armor that everything's okay. And I think that for me, it just makes me wonder, how are we defining leadership in our culture if people feel like they have to always be wearing this armor and they can't talk about their failures and the mistakes that they've made or the obstacles that they've had to overcome or, or are trying to overcome? To me, I think that you know, it's one thing if it's a personal stance. Another, I think if it's the culture that's forcing people to feel like they need to act that way, then I would say that we need to seriously change or think about changing the culture of leadership and how we define good leadership. I think that there's another kind of vulnerability. So one is sort of whether you choose to make yourself vulnerable. The other, I think, is when people feel vulnerable about the way they're being used to tell stories, where people might not feel like they have a sense of agency in their own story. And so that's something that we've been really spending a lot more time. When we first started the company roughly 15 years ago, we were not as cognizant of these kinds of questions. But now a lot of the questions that we're asking are who makes the decision about whose voices get heard in a video story? Who's at the table? Who's not? Why? In the stories, is anyone being stereotyped or tokenized? And also just looking at the stories as well in terms of are the stories set up in a way to create an us versus them dynamic, or are they more about sort of reinforcing our collective humanity and getting at that empathy that I was talking about earlier? So those are some of the questions that we're also thinking about. We also think about a lot of people have been taught to tell stories from a donor-centric point of view, and that's something that we don't really employ as much. I don't know if folks are familiar with communitycentricfundraising.org, but community-centric fundraising, I think, is a different model that we really are excited to be looking into more deeply. And it's one in which you're not putting the donor at the center of everything in the story. It's really looking at more a community approach. Another resource that I also wanted to mention as well while we're talking about vulnerability and the sense of agency and being able to tell your own story is there is, I heard a speaker recently at a Com Network conference, his name is Trabian Shorters, and he talks about the importance of asset framing and the idea that people deserve to have their stories framed around their strengths and about their inspirations and their contributions not about their perceived liabilities or deficiencies, which is often the trap that many stories do tell. I'm really glad you brought that up, Rachel, because I've really been thinking about what is the difference between telling a personal story or telling a story about mistakes or lessons learned or whatever it may be, and playing into you know what I'm calling poverty porn or exploitation. I think we've all been on the receiving end of like, icky white savior type pieces of media that just don't feel good. Don't feel good for the donor and don't feel good for the subject of the video. So I'm wondering if you could say a little bit more about how you make that explicit differentiation between telling of a personal story against being exploitative. Yeah, and that's a really great question. And it makes, you know, there's poverty porn, there's inspiration porn, which is kind of, it makes me think of the late Stella Young. She's a comedian and a writer and a disability activist. She talks about porn is basically all about objectification. And in storytelling, it manifests itself in the sense that you're objectifying one group of people for the benefit or entertainment or whatever it might be of another. 
And so she talks about, you know, in the context of inspiration porn, she talks about how inspiration porn is basically objectifying members of the disability community for the benefit of people who aren't in that community and how that there are a lot of stories out there that are meant to motivate people or make people feel better about themselves because when they look at someone who's disabled, they'd say, well, at least I don't have it as bad as that person does. And that's not what storytelling should be about. And so I just go back to that need to be really using storytelling as a tool to reinforce our collective humanity and create that empathy and not set up that us versus them dynamic or I feel better. It's not about you feeling better. It's about coming together as a community and really saying, how can we raise everyone up? How do we all have a sense of responsibility to make the life and the world that we live in a better place? And so I wanted to put the Stella Young, um, the TED Talk. She's got a really wonderful TED Talk called I'm Not Your Inspiration. I think for us, a lot of it's just asking questions too. Sometimes we have clients who come to us knowing exactly the story that they want to tell. Other times they don't. Either way, we ask questions and say, you know, let's think about this. What are your messages? How are they being crafted? What are your audience's expectations? What messages have they been hearing from you already? Whose voices are not being heard? And so we ask a lot of those questions to try and challenge people to think. And also looking at an audit of how they've already been telling their story. So we can think about, okay, here's a story that you've already crafted. or Here's a story that's already out there. Does it make sense to change things or add other voices into the mix? We weren't always conscious of asking these questions when we first started the business, but it's something that we definitely have become much more aware of and really put a greater priority on. It's interesting that you say that because I think sometimes we just forget to ask the question. Like I was talking to a group yesterday and they were asking about like, what should we do with our major donors, this, that, the other, and how can we get them engaged? My response is, well, why don't you just ask them? Just ask them how they want to be involved. Just ask them. In this case, it might be like, just ask people how they would want to be portrayed. Like what would be an empowering way for them to present their story? It's such a simple thing that we forget to do. I think another exercise when I do presentations on video storytelling strategy, one of the things I always do is I encourage people to ask people that not are your staff, not on your board, but ask people in your community what they think the mission of your organization is. Because you could really learn a lot when you ask that question. You'll learn that some people might think you only serve a certain geographic area or a certain population, or you're known for only one type of service, and people don't have the sense of the breadth of depth of the services you offer. So asking a lot of those questions can really let you know. You might have a story that you want out there, but there might be a very different story of you out there. And so the more you ask questions to learn, the better off you'll be. Yeah, that's such an important point. Something that you said that I want to go back to. So you said that Google, you learned in this Google training, there are three kinds of stories, the hero story, the hub story, and the how-to story. Is that right? They were talking about buckets of content. So hero, hub, and help. Okay. So my question to you is, that's a lot of content. (laughs) And I'm wondering, especially for small nonprofits that don't have a communications department, it might be one executive director and maybe a development director. How do you keep up with all of this content production? Because it feels like it's a little bit damned if you do, damned if you don't, right? Like we're on this treadmill of having to create content to stay relevant that people will think of us, but at the same token, it's exhausting and it's a lot of stuff to do. So how do you thread that needle between creating good content in order to stay relevant and top of mind and also not overwhelming yourself? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think in general... 
I would say less is more. And what I mean by that is that it's not a good idea just to put out content for the sake of putting out content. I think that you want to put out content that you feel good about and what's within your bandwidth and your capacity. I think that we do talk to people about creating a library of videos that you can use over time across different channels for different target audiences and different calls to action. But again, there's always that pressure, but I think that it's really easy to kind of give into that pressure. And I'm not advocating that people do that. I mentioned sort of the different types of content so you can be thoughtful about what types of content might make sense and not all of it necessarily has to be video. But I think it's a good exercise. One of the reasons why I like that framework because it just gives you a sense of, you know, we often talk to people about creating a communications calendar. And how can you embed video if you already have a communications calendar, like a blog or your e-news or your social media posts, how can you embed video in it to help boost the engagement? And so I think that we're talking to people about that, but I think that we would be the first to say that not all video needs to be professionally produced. We really feel it's important to meet people where they are. And so there are ways to create content without having to have it be professionally done and have it be overwhelming you know, in that regard. I hope that gets at answering your question. I don't know if I was complete in that. Yeah, I think that's helpful. What I heard was have a calendar for content that feels doable for you and isn't overwhelming and isn't necessarily costly. And I do want to talk about that for one second. But one of the things that I was wondering about is, can you talk about the power of video over other media? Because I mean, if we look at content that's exploding across the internet, like TikTok is probably the largest growing platform out there. YouTube is the second largest search engine after Google. So it feels like if folks aren't doing video content, it's a missed opportunity as compared to say audio content or written content. Do you agree with that? Can you say more about that? I definitely, obviously I'm biased. <laughs> so I'm just putting that right out there. But I mean, I also appreciate a really good podcast too. So I enjoy audio content, of course. But I think that one of the things that I really appreciate about video, it certainly is, I think, again, it's a really useful tool in establishing a connection. If you can't be in person with someone, it, to me, it seems like the next best option. This is maybe something that people are planning and doing now. You know, not a lot of folks are going to be able to get together with families and friends for Thanksgiving, but you know, having a video where I'm going to be able to have dessert long distance virtually with my parents and my sister and we'll play games together online, which is an opportunity to try and sort of interact. I think that it's, it's, you get pulled into people's stories, pulled into people's energy. And so I think that if you hear someone's story, and it, whether it is engaging because of the story that they're telling because of an experience that's happened to them, or because they want you to get involved in an advocacy effort that they're really passionate about, I think that just hearing people and watching them and their body language and their energy and their commitment just really draws you in. And of course, it depends upon the call to action that you are hoping people to respond to. And I also would say animation is also a really beautiful tool. It doesn't have to be an alternative. I mean, you can do both. But for some organizations, depending upon their mission area or their access to people to film, you know, animation can be a really good substitute as well. That's a good reminder. And honestly, a lot of these things are quite cost-effective, right? Like practically free. I mean, we're living in a very interesting time right now where technology has made possible things that otherwise would have taken, you know, a whole studio to do. 
So I'm picturing that I'm, imagine that I'm an executive director and I'm saying, Rachel, I hear you. I'm ready to produce some video content. And maybe this is a false dichotomy. So you'll tell me if this is true, but I'm compelled to be like, I either spend a lot of money on creating a really, really high end glossy hero video, or I empower my staff to do a lot of like iPhone type videos that we post on a pretty regular basis on our social media channels. Which one do I go for? (laughs) And if I do both, is that confusing for my audience? Okay, so that's an excellent question. And I'm going to come at it from a bunch of different angles. First, what I would say is that, again, our philosophy is to meet people where they are. So for us, we recognize that not everyone has the bandwidth, the resources, the capacity to either do it on their own or to hire. So we sort of, we try and talk to people about what their options are. A hybrid approach is definitely something that is possible. And we've done that on several occasions. What I would say is that there are a couple different factors that play a role in sort of figuring out which way you want to go or what way makes sense. One is that sort of what what are the expectations of your audience, I guess, in one sense. So I would say that more typically in our experience for those big signature hero moments, those brand gala videos, that kind of thing, often people will go the professional route, not only because of the, again, sort of the branding. Sometimes people get those opportunities, sometimes a donor will come forward and if they're funding it, then they want a professional quality to be matched with their name. But our approach essentially is that, and especially right now with COVID, you know, we're doing sort of a bunch of different things. One is we are filming a lot of interviews virtually. We also are filming in person, but with COVID guidelines in mind. We are doing animation. We are taking people's existing footage and giving it additional shelf life and adding more energy to it with new graphics and music and voiceover. So there's a variety of ways to get more mileage out of what you already have as well. If folks do want to capture their own footage, we can give guidance on what are the best ways to think about doing that. Often when we're doing a video project, there's pre-production, which is the strategy, production, the actual filming, and then post-production, the editing. Typically, we're doing things soup to nuts, but we also come in and out as people need. So we're always happy to have people just reach out and say, this is what we're thinking. This is how we're thinking of approaching it. Do you have any guidance? And we're happy to answer questions and just see if we can be helpful. But I would not say that everything has to be professionally produced. And I would also not say when you say sort of high... There are a variety in the ranges of level of investment for video. It really kind of, there's so many different factors that go into it. So again, it's always worth a conversation. And then if we're able to be a good fit, great. If we're not, we try and refer someone else who can be, or as I said, we give guidance to folks on how to do it on their own. So my last question for you, Rachel, and I'm sure there'll be lots more questions, but you brought up a point that I want to make sure that we lift up a little bit, which is that you can recycle, you can upcycle your content. And so if you do the beautiful gala video, you can also chop it up and use it for like video snippets and so forth. I'm actually doing this with this podcast. So we're doing video and then I use it for audio. But tell me a little bit about what are some key stories that you feel like nonprofits need to have ready to go off the shelf? That's a great question. So, I mean, I think that most of our time, I guess, would say typically we're working with folks to tell impact stories. So I would say that's most of where our time is, is that the folks with whom we work really, they want to be able to showcase the good that they're doing in the world. 
With that said, whenever we engage with folks, we have a process in pre-production where we say, you know, what is your must-have content and what is your nice-to-have content? So what are your must-have messages and must-have images? And then what is your nice-to-have messages and nice-to-have images? Because we want people to get the most mileage out of any footage um, or any project. And so even if the primary story is about their success a success story or impact, we always say, okay, well, do you need, what kind of testimonials do you need that would help? You know, do you need to recruit volunteers? Okay, let's get a volunteer testimonial. Do you need to recruit board members? Are you recruiting folks for an advocacy effort? Do you want to try and get folks to come to an event? Should we create a pre-event teaser video and a post-event thank you video? So we were always thinking about what are extra pieces of video and, and extra pieces of content and mini stories that we can be helping folks use to not only boost engagement for any, if they're embedding it in any news or blog or whatever it is, but also just make sure we're meeting the different needs. Whenever we talk to people about video, we'll say, how could video be helpful to you? And we ask people to kind of brainstorm and think widely and maybe we hone in on just what the fundraising video is for their event, but we always ask widely first and say, you know, what are all your possible needs so that we can be creative in thinking about what kind of content maps to each of those needs and each of those calls to action. And I think that when we think about calls to action, one thing I would say is that sometimes there are two mistakes that we often we encounter. You know, sometimes folks don't make a clear call to action and they either don't have one or they have too many calls to action. It's like, give us money, come to our event, like us on Facebook, whatever it might be. And so we feel like it's really important that you make it clear to people what it is that you want them to do and don't give them too many options because then people won't necessarily follow through on what it is that you want them to do. 100%. I'm so glad you said that because I was just about to say that the call to action is so key to a good video because otherwise you just watch the video and go, oh, that was nice. And then you move on. <laughs> like we don't want that was nice. We want I'm going to do something on the basis of this video. There's one thing, a story that if it's okay, I wanted to just kind of read this as an example of sort of building empathy and how it doesn't have to be a long story. This is a story that was from April of 2014 from Tales from the City, which is a little segment in the Boston Globe magazine. And if it's okay with you, I'd just like to read it. So a year ago, my 16-year-old son, Henry, was in Boston with a friend to watch the marathon. When the bombs went off, Henry's 17-year-old brother, Alex, desperately called his phone over and over, 30 times in all, with no response. He finally received a puzzled text asking Alex to identify himself. Realizing he had the wrong number, Alex apologized and explained that he was worried about his brother in Boston. Alex finally got through to Henry, who was safely a mile from the finish line at the time of the attack. That night, Alex received another text from the wrong number asking, did you ever get a hold of your brother? As Alex later observed, here was somebody he didn't know, someone he had pestered with misplaced phone calls, checking on someone he or she didn't know. Alex responded that we had found Henry and that he was safe. Good, the stranger replied. I was worried. That's so lovely. It's a story that was submitted by Randy Mitchell from Beverly. And for me, that story just speaks volumes. And again, it gets at that connection and empathy piece. I mean, to me, it just gives me goosebumps every time I read that. And so I just wanted to share that with you as an example of a really powerful story. Great. Thanks so much. We're going to take a short break for a word from our sponsors. What if I gave you a way to 3x, 5x, 10x your fundraising this year? 
Starting this month, I'm opening up my fundraising accelerator program to coach you to be the fearless, effective fundraiser that your organization needs you to be. In this accelerator, you'll work with me and a small cohort for seven weeks starting in February to organize and laser focus your fundraising efforts for results. The cohort is limited to 20 participants, so apply today at riawong.com. That's R-H-E-A-W-O-N-G.com. Because your nonprofit isn't here to just survive, it's here to thrive. Again, that's riawong.com to apply today. And now back to our show. We have a question coming in from Beth Porter. Hi, Beth. Nice to see you. Hello, how are you? I'm good. So I would just love to hear about sort of the ideal length for videos. I hear different opinions on that, and I think it's probably a different answer for the hero version than the hub version, but any guidance welcomed. Thank you, uh, Beth, for the question. So what I would say, I mean, it certainly depends upon how you're sharing the videos and the platforms, but I would say that often if the hero video, for example, let's say it's being shown at a gala event, We often say to people that, again, sort of less is more. Usually we would recommend for an event video anywhere from three to five minutes. Often it becomes closer to five because people feel like they have a captive audience and they want to kind of take advantage of that. But we also have had some people who've wanted to create, I remember we had one client that wanted to create a 12 minute video and we kind of screamed and hollered and said, please, like, please don't make us do that. (laughs) And, And we lost that battle. So I think that just because you have a captive audience, you don't necessarily want to take advantage of that. If you're thinking about sort of video on your website, I would definitely say, you know, aiming for ideally sort of two minutes or less. I mean, I think that what we talk to people about is having multiple shorter videos instead of one longer video. And then for social media, again, it depends upon the platform that you're on. Rachel, not to decry, I mean, this makes me feel like an old person, but my kids these days and their attention span, but do you feel like people's attention spans have made it necessary to have shorter videos and like little bite-sized pieces? I do. I think that people's attention spans are getting shorter and shorter. And I think that that's why it's really important to kind of grab people very early on in the video story that you're trying to tell and create that sense of energy or urgency or whatever it is that you're hoping people will feel early on. And some people sort of follow a traditional story arc That's not necessarily the way that sort of we approach thinking about the stories that we do with our clients. Like, I don't think we sort of fit to that kind of framework or template. I think we use more of the frameworks that I mentioned earlier, but I know that some people do that too. And it just, it really kind of depends upon your style and with whom you're working, but getting to the meat of the the story quicker is definitely going to help you out in terms of keeping people's attention, keeping them engaged. So you bring up a good point because I think it's so hard for people to understand what makes a good story when it's their own organization, right? Like it's hard to, you can't operate on yourself. And so I guess I'm wondering what tips can you offer people to help them get to the emotional core of a story that might be compelling to their audience? Because I think it's hard to edit your own work. Yeah. Well, I think that one of the things that I've heard a lot, I think is really helpful is that if as an organization, I don't know how frequently, you know, it depends upon obviously the size of your organization and the work that you're doing, but having program people and fundraising people meet regularly and actually having the team come together and really brainstorm on 
what are the stories? What is going on on the front lines? Because I think that sometimes folks on the fundraising side are a bit further removed from what's actually going on in terms of the actual day-to-day activities and where those stories rest. And so I think that having that collaboration and having meetings and being sort of intentional about having conversations about, again, sort of that storytelling audit. So what are the stories that you've already told? Are you telling the same stories over and over again? And I know that a lot of folks are spread really thin and they don't have a lot of necessarily feel like they have a lot of time and bandwidth, but being able to be strategic, I mean, it really depends upon your organization and the mission in terms of what kind of emotion you're going to be able to draw. I think that obviously that people are so passionate about what they're doing. So whether you work for an animal shelter or whether you work for an educational institution, whether you're working for an after-school program, whatever it might be, to me, it's getting at the core of that impact from the person's own perspective. How are they feeling strengthened and empowered and they building on their own assets to grow and become a better person or have a better experience? I think that it's those kinds of emotional moments where, because I think that people really connect with other people. It's not the data. It's about people and people's stories. And so I think the more that you can make people have the opportunity to to kind of have that personal lens into the work that your organization is doing the better it's going to be. And it's going to help you make that connection with your audience and reinforce your mission in their eyes. And I think you said something that is so important that I really want to highlight here, which is like, don't overcomplicate it. Like I've seen so many videos and just like slap you in the face with all of the data and the numbers and like 10 different people telling all the stories. And it's like, okay, (laughs) less is more to your point. Like let's focus in on one person and one story and one message. And I think in this age of COVID where we can't host program visits, which are often the bread and butter of development efforts, video might be a way to substitute for that. Have you seen any of your clients use video in that way? In terms of the projects that we're working on right now, that's not so much what we've been working on. I think that that certainly is an option. I mean, I think that it's just interesting because one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about is sort of what are, and I'm not a fundraiser, obviously, but let's sort of, I definitely am thinking about what are the role of site visits and do site visits create that donor-centric us versus them how is it reinforcing white saviorism? Not that all donors are white, but I'm just saying I definitely think about current sort of structure of philanthropy or the traditional philanthropy and how does that need to shift? And again, that's why I keep going back to the community-centric fundraising.org website, because I feel like their model of looking at philanthropy and the way donations are done and the way decisions are made, I think is a really important way, in my opinion, the direction that I think things should go really in sort of putting more emphasis on community instead of any one particular organization, equally valuing all people's donations, whether it's donations of time, staff effort, donation of money, sort of not creating a hierarchy, if you will. Sometimes I worry a little bit about the way, maybe it depends upon the way site visits are conducted, but I just sort of sometimes I'm concerned about the roles that site visits can play in reinforcing some of that us versus them dynamic. So that's just, those are some things I've been thinking about anyway. Rachel, we can have a whole other interview about changing the power dynamics of philanthropy because I've been thinking about that a lot too. Okay. So last question for me before we sign off, how would you recommend that people get started with incorporating video into their work? X, hiring you and doing a lot of big, splashy production. Yeah, I mean, I think that 
I would just go back to sort of, first of all, thinking about what is it you want people to know? So what are those must have messages and moments in your organization that you think people really would rally around? What do you want them to feel? Do you want them to feel outraged? Do you want them to feel empathy? Do you want them to feel passionate about advocacy effort that you're doing? So think about what you want them to feel and then what you want them to do. So what is that call to action that you're hoping they'll respond? And when you have those things thought through, then you can map to, okay, whose voices make sense to map to those messages? What images do we need to capture that will reinforce those? So I think that if you use that framework, it might be a good start for that brainstorming. But again, I would also say it's always important to look at what stories you already have out there and what people outside of your organization think that your organization does. Because one of the things we always talk to people about, which is key, is really looking at what myths and misperceptions might be out there about your organization and how can video help overcome those. That's the question that we ask every single client or prospective client, and no one ever has a shortage of answers. They are always like, oh, well, here's one myth, here's one misperception. And so I think if not that video is a cure-all for everything, but I think that's also a really helpful question to ask yourself before you get started. That's really helpful. Rachel, thank you so much for being on with us. Where can we find you on the interwebs? So Reflection Films, our website is r-films with an s.com. Feel free to check out our work. Um, We have a variety of samples. And as I said, I'd be happy to entertain questions and see if I can be helpful to anyone. So thanks so much for coming and for listening. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. And I'll make sure to put all of your information in the show notes for folks listening to this on the podcast. Have a great week. Thanks. 